That is from Psalm 119.105. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to 1 Timothy chapter 4. And today we are going to continue what we didn't quite have time to finish up last week. And, and uh, so we, the sermon title's wrong. And uh, this, the text is wrong. <laughs> they always want to know what I'm going to preach on. I don't know what I'm going to preach on until the very week and sometimes the very morning. Um, sometimes I think, you know, I'm just going to spend more time on this and then everything gets messed up. And so it's always a guess. But we're going to finish the last half of verse 10 of 1 Timothy and, um, and look at the other two uh, parts of the good servant's hope. We've learned in this text, uh, in 1 Timothy 4, verses 6 through 16, that, um, that a good servant or excellent servant, as it might be translated, or minister, um, is one who is characterized by having certain pursuits in his life, certain goals, certain desires, certain things that he strives for. In verse 6, we noticed that... Um, he is to be pointing these things to the brethren, pointing out these things to the brethren, which means he is to always be teaching, is what that means. He is also, according to verse 6, to be constantly nourished up on the words of the faith and sound doctrine, which means always being nourished up on the words of the faith and sound doctrine. And not only that, he is to be following them. And what's interesting, as you see just in this one verse, the excellent minister is one who is always teaching, always studying, and always modeling the Word of God. And so this phrase, a good or excellent minister of Jesus Christ, um, found in this uh, verse, is kind of the theme of verses 6 through 16, where Paul goes into detail now explaining what the excellent minister is. He explains what an excellent minister is so that we know the difference between who is the excellent minister and who is not. And last Lord's Day, we started looking at the good servant's hope, and we first learned that we have this hope, and it should motivate us to labor for the Lord. We found out that he said in verse 10, for it is this we labor and strive. And the this that he speaks of is the bodily discipline of verse 8. In verse 7 he says, hey, don't have anything to do with uh, worldly wives' tales. Just don't even go there. He says, but on the other hand, I want you to discipline yourself. He says, you know, bodily discipline's okay. He says, you know, it, it's, it's got some temporary benefits. But godliness... Oh, it is really good because it not only benefits you in this life, but the life to come. So he says, I want you to discipline yourself for godliness. And that is the trustworthy statement deserving of full acceptance in verse 9. And then he says, for it is this, referring back to disciplining ourselves to godliness, that he speaks in verse 10. And so we learned we are to labor and strive. And the word labor means to work to the point of sweat and exhaustion. And then this word strive means to agonize. It's the Greek word agonizomai, to just agonize in order to achieve this godliness. If anyone desires to be an excellent minister, he must labor and strive. In 1 Timothy 3.1, if you turn there... 
We learned this interesting little thing a while back in 3.1 where it says, It is a trustworthy statement. If a man aspires to the office of an overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. What is this fine work? The fine work is to, as this text describes, take pains with the word, pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching, give attention to public reading, to scriptures, to the exhortation, to teaching, to constantly being nourished up in the word of the faith, to always be telling other people, to always be modeling the truth. These are the works of um, an elder, a, a pastor, an overseer, a bishop that he speaks of. And so if you don't want to um, work in that way, then you don't want the work of an overseer. There are many people who want the office of overseer. They want the power. They want the position. They want the influence. They want to have a say, but they don't want the labor and agonizing part. They don't want to spend long hours studying the word of God, laboring over the scriptures, teaching and modeling the scriptures. They are like the false disciples in John 66, 66, where Jesus, as he's speaking to them, says, Listen, no one can come to me unless it has been granted him by the Father. And then they quit following him because they didn't like that. They wanted their own part in their salvation. They wanted to be good on their own. And they didn't want anybody telling them that God was sovereign over their salvation. So they left and were no longer following him anymore. But we learned last week that these these works of an overseer are laid out in this text so all of us can obey these things. Sure, it's for leaders, but it's for leaders to model for all of us. And so don't think that this is just for leaders, although it's specifically directed at leaders, it applies to all of us as well. Second, we not only learned that it is a labor and an agonizing work, we also learned the object of the good servant's hope. And that is, according to the text, the living God. We learned that hope allows us to endure trials, endure suffering. The greater the hope one has in God, the greater the ability that person will have to persevere under trial and affliction and whatever. Conversely, a person with little or no hope will have very little stamina, very little endurance. And that is why it is so important that leaders especially be constantly nourished up in the words of the faith so they're always being reminded of the truth of God's word so their hope will be great, their endurance will be great, their perseverance will be great and then God will be able to work through them in a great way. And if they don't have that hope, they will just be tossed to and fro by the waves of trial. So if you have your Bible, look, and we're going to read, I just want to read verses 10 through 16. Notice what he says here. For it is this, that we labor and strive, because we have fixed our hope on the living God, who is the Savior of all men, and especially believers. Prescribe and teach these things, let no one look down on your youthfulness, but rather in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity, show yourself an example for those who believe. Till I come, give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and teaching. 
Do not neglect the spiritual gift within you, which was bestowed on you through prophetic utterance with the laying on of hands by the presbytery. Take pains with these things. Be absorbed in them so that your progress will be evident to all. Pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things, for as you do, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and those who hear you. So now we want to finish up the last half of verse 10. And if you look there, what we're going to see is the universal reason why you can have hope in your pursuit of godliness and the particular reason why you can have hope in your pursuit of godliness. He says, for it is this we labor and strive because we fixed our hope on the living God who is the savior of all men. Now, that is an interesting phrase, isn't it? That seems to teach a doctrine, a false doctrine called universalism. Universalism is a doctrine which is, oh, we're all going to get to heaven. It doesn't matter what you believe. It doesn't matter what you do. You can be an atheist. You can be a God hater. You can be a Satan worshiper. We're all going to get there because, hey, God's the savior of all men. And some people try to use this verse and similar verses to teach that God through the death of Christ, has saved all men. And it's just a matter of time, and we'll all get there. You go your own selfish way, I go my own selfish way, and hey, we'll see you there. And that's kind of how they picture it. But think about the ramifications of such foolishness. Think about what this would mean in relationship to the Scriptures. It would mean that God is not just, because He would not punish those who are unrepentant. It would mean that heaven would be full of unrepentant God-haters. It would mean that there is no hell. It would mean that there is no judgment. It would mean that there is no reason for evangelism or missions. And all of our efforts to send missionaries out and to preach the gospel and to try and train people to share their faith is futile. It would mean that Jesus is a liar. It would mean the apostles are liars. And it would mean the rest of the writers of Scripture are liars and the Bible isn't true. And so, whatever this text means, it doesn't mean that God is going to save all men. Let's say you bought a bag of M&M's. Your favorite kind, you know, some people like the plain and some people like the peanuts and some people like those little ones with the crunchy stuff in the inside. And you just pour them into a bowl. And a friend of yours comes over and says, could I have a few M&Ms? Now, how many would you give them? Would you give them five? Or maybe ten? And then, you know, you could give them... 15, but that'd be like a whole handful. I mean, after all, you start thinking to yourself, that is only a few, is what they ask for. Just a couple, few, maybe a couple more than a couple. Well, the Bible teaches that only a few will be saved. Somebody has a bowl of M&Ms, they may grab out just a handful of 10 or 12 out of those several hundred a few are going to get to heaven. Even though 85% of Americans call themselves Christians, a few will actually get into heaven. 
Now you need to think about this. Jesus said in Matthew 7.14 that the way is broad that leads to destruction and many go that way, but the way is narrow and small that leads to eternal life and few are those who find it. Few. In Matthew 22.14 when he finishes telling about the parable of the wedding feast where, you know, they went out there and they called all the people who were supposed to come and they didn't come. So then they just went all to the byways and just found anybody they could and just called and called and called. And some of those people came. And at the very end, the punchline of the parable is many are called, but few are chosen. A couple. In Luke 13, 23 and 24, the disciples just went out and asked Jesus this question. Lord, are there just a few who are being saved? Jesus had such stringent view of salvation that the disciples began to marvel. Lord, is it only a few who are going to be saved? I mean, they thought, you know, we're all going to get in when we're Israel. But they started realizing that, no, that's not how it is. And he said to them, strive to enter through the narrow door. Now, this word strive just happens to be our same word, agonizomai. Agonize to enter in through the narrow door for many... I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Both Matthew and Luke tell us that there will be many religious people, many people who seek to enter, who want to enter, who think they're going to enter, who at the very end will be very surprised to discover they will not be able because only a few enter in. Now, when you begin to look at this, it can become disturbing thinking that, well, I wonder if I'm one of those people because, you know, I want to go in. Do I get to go in? And this is something we need to think about. In John Bunyan's classic tale, Pilgrim's Progress, he tells at the very end of the story this very scary little incident. It is a scary incident because it paints for us a picture of the same thing we're talking about now, that few enter. Pilgrim, Christian, who has been on his journey with Hopeful, have finally got to the end and they've crossed over the river of death where they had, you have to wade across the river of death and the only thing that can keep you from drowning is your faith. So they've waded across the river of death and when they get to the other side, they're instantly clothed in white raiment. 
there's angels there who begin to cry out. There's trumpets from the celestial city going forth. There's this huge celebration and shouts of joy. And they begin to head up towards the city gate. And because they have their certificates, which they, they acquired when they en- went through the narrow gate, the king then asks them to come into the city with all these shouts of joy to walk on the streets of gold and to dine with him in his presence. And they see all the saints and faithful who was martyred along the way in Vanity Fair and there's this incredible joy and blessing. And then Bunyan stops and he describes a person named Ignorance. Now, ignorance was a character in the story who Christian and Hopeful ran into earlier. He had jumped the wall and did not enter by the narrow way. And they tried to tell him he needed a certificate, but he said, Oh, no, I've, <laughs> I know the king and I know his ways and he's taught in our city and I'm going to get there and you guys are self-righteous and you're narrow-minded and we'll see you later. And Bunyan writes this. Now, while I was gazing upon these things, I turned my head to look back and saw ignorance come up to the riverside. But he soon got over and that without half the difficulty with which the other two men met with. For it happened that there was then in that place one vain hope, a ferryman that was his with his boat helped him over. So he, as the other I saw, did ascend the hill to come up to the gate, only he came alone. Neither did any man meet him with the least encouragement. And when he was come up to the gate, he looked upon the writing that was above, and then he began to knock, supposing that entrance would have been quickly administered to him. But he was asked by the men that looked over the top of the gate, Where do you come from? And what do you have? And he answered, I have ate and drank in the presence of the king, and he has taught in our streets. Then they asked him for his certificate that they might go in and show it to the king. So he fumbled in his bosom for one and found none. Then said they, Have you none? But the man answered never a word. So they told the king, but he would not come down to see him, but commanded the two shining ones that conducted Christian and hopeful to the city to go out and take ignorance and bind him hand and foot and have him away. Then they took him up and carried him through the air to the door that I saw on the side of the hill and put him in there. Then I saw there was a way to hell, even from the gates of heaven, as well as from the city of destruction." Now, that is a scary thought, but that is exactly what the scriptures teach, that many will seek to enter. Many will stand before the Lord and say, Lord, Lord, have we not? And Jesus will say, I never knew you away with you. So whatever this text means, it can't mean that all men are saved from their sins and get to go to heaven. So what does it mean? What does it mean? Well, some people have seen this verse to mean that it's talking about believers in both cases. You see, when you do a word search of the word Savior, Savior almost always is used of saving men from sins and giving them eternal life. That is the normal meaning of the word. And so they would say, what this is really saying is that he is the Savior of all sorts or kinds of men especially believers. 
This gets them out of universalism, but it brings them into another problem. Because think, if this means he is the savior of all kinds or sorts of men, especially believers, then what he's really saying is he is the savior of all sorts or kinds of believers, especially believers. And that does not make sense. And so now you have to ask yourself, so is there any other views? Well, there is. You can look at the text and you can say, well, maybe he's talking about potential. He's talking about potential. Potentially, he is the savior of all men. And certainly this is true, isn't it? I mean, if there ever is a savior for all the world, it's Jesus And even though he is potentially the savior of all men, he is only actually the savior of those who believe. So that is a much better view. The word especially would indicate salvation leading to eternal life, especially believers. Now this is what's interesting. That word especially describes a differing degree, but of the same kind. So whatever it is, if you're saying, well, he is potentially the savior this way, but he is actually the savior that way, then he's really not the same kind of both. He is a different kind, one in potential and one in actuality. So that one doesn't work very well either, even though the scriptures would support it. For instance, in John 1, 9 and following, John writes, there was a light which coming into the world enlightens every man. That's true. Every man is enlightened by Jesus as he comes into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him and the world did not know him and he came to his own and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God even to those who believe in his name. So the scriptures do teach that Jesus is the light of all men. They do teach that he shines for all men and so potentially is the savior of all men but only some believe. But The weakness in that argument is not only what we already mentioned, but that it puts too much weight on this word Savior as if it has to be translated the normal way it's usually translated. And this is is a good lesson to learn about context. Whenever you do a word study, whenever you look up a word, you don't just go to a lexicon or a theological word book and say, well, this is the most popular meaning, therefore it's the meaning in my text. Let me show you. Let's just say that, you know, I went to see a movie getting filmed because, you know, I've never seen that happen before. And so I went and I saw this movie being filmed and and I called you up and I said, man, this guy blew up. Now, what did I mean by that? You see, without the context, you can't know what I mean. Did I mean that the guy got super angry and just came unglued? you know, exploded in a fit of anger? Or do I mean that there was some, you know, pyrotechnic stuff going on there and the guy got too close and literally got blown to smithereens? Or that the movie was about hang gliding and a big gust of wind caught a guy in a hang glider and it blew him up higher? (laughs) You see, because you don't know the context, you can't know the meaning of the word. Lexicons and theological word books only tell you the range of possible meanings, but they don't tell you which meaning is the meaning in the text that you are studying. The text tells you the meaning, which one to pick. The lexicon tells you the variety. So we get into trouble if we just go and say, well, this is the normal meaning, therefore it should be the meaning here. That's wrong. Now, 
When you look at this, you have to ask yourself, well, let's look at the lexicons and find out what the meaning is. This word soter and related words. And this is what you dis- discover. Normally, it means saving from sins, saving from hell, saving from the consequences of uh, sin and judgment through faith in Christ. That is the normal meaning of Savior. But there is another meaning. And this meaning means to preserve or to keep or deliver. And that is the best meaning for this text. And let me show you why. If you look at the text and you say, okay, let's say it means to preserve or to keep. And you ask ourselves this. Is there any way in which God preserves and keeps all men and out of those all men to a greater degree believers? And all of a sudden it's like, well, yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, Does God have... Mercy towards all men? Sure. Does God give grace to all men? Sure. Does God hold back His wrath from all men for a time? Yes. So this is what I believe Paul is saying here. He is the preserver of all men in a temporary way, but in a much greater degree, He preserves believers ultimately from the wrath to come. In Matthew 5.45, Jesus said, God causes the sun to rise and the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. I mean, it doesn't matter whether you know God or not, He extends mercy and grace to you. In Luke 6.35, Jesus said, Love your enemies and do good and lend and expect nothing in return and your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High for He Himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. That's what God does. He's kind. He is very patient and kind to ungrateful and evil men. Turn over to Romans chapter 9. This is a text where we could probably get bogged down in. I'm glad we aren't fielding any questions. But um, in 9.22, I just want to show you something here. Or we can see God preserving sinners all men, and yet especially preserving others. Look at verse 22. Now, he's talking about the sovereignty of God and salvation. He says this, What if God, although willing to demonstrate His wrath and to make His power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? Here's the first category. All men, before they come to faith, fit into verse 22. Why? I mean, what does Ephesians 2 say? We all walked according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. We all walked according to the lust of the flesh and the eyes and were by nature children of wrath. All of us, children of wrath. That's who we all were by nature. And so all of us, even though we are children of wrath, like John 3.36 says, he who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey shall not see life, but what? The wrath of God abides on him, but does not consume him yet. And here he says, what if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, and he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. Out of that universal category of men prepared for destruction, he then takes 
some of them shows them mercy and saves them. And here we see, in a temporal way, God endures with much patience these vessels of wrath. And that's what, exactly what I think he's saying here. So out of the mass of sinful, undeserving humanity, God chose to make known his mercy. Now what's interesting is don't forget what we're talking about here. We're talking about the good minister's hope. Now how would this give us hope? Well, it gives us hope to know that God right now is extending mercy and grace to all men, especially believers. And we're going to talk about that more in just a little bit. The universal reason why you can have hope in your pursuit of godliness is because you have a living God who is gracious universally and merciful universally to all men universally. And right now his wrath, his righteous indignation is held back so that people can come to salvation. And this is a great hope. I mean, this gives us hope to keep witnessing. Peter summed it up well in 2 Peter 3, 9, where he said, The Lord is not slow about his promises, some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. If you turn back to 1 Timothy 2, Look at what he says in verse 3. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior who desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all, the testimony given at a proper time. God right now is so gracious. He is so kind to all men. All men who don't even recognize it. But look at the particular reason why the good servant can have hope. Because he is the savior, especially of believers. Now this word especially means to a greater, a superlative degree, to the ultimate degree, to the utmost is what it means. He is the savior to the utmost of believers. Not only does he hold back his wrath in this life... He holds back his wrath permanently. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Well, we have passed out of death unto life. We have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of his beloved son. We stand before him holy and blameless without spot or stain or wrinkle. In Galatians 6.10, we see how this word especially talks about degrees. Now listen to what he says says there. Galatians 6.10, So then while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially those who are of the household of faith. Now what does that mean? Well, it means that we're to be doing good to all people, right? But if there comes a time where we have to make a, a priority between loving the believer and loving the unbeliever, We take care of who first? The household of faith, especially to a greater degree, those who are our relatives in Christ. If you turn over to 1 Timothy 5.17, this is what you'll read about elders and their being paid to do ministry. 
He says this in verse 17. The elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. Notice the text says any elder, any elder who meets the qualifications, who desires the work and who works hard is worthy of support in the ministry. But especially if you have to make a check, those who work hard at preaching and teaching, because that is of very high importance. And so those would take priority. It shows a greater degree than the others. So God is especially the Savior of those who believe, not only for a short time, but for all eternity. Now, there are a few who enter the narrow gate. There are a few who are chosen. There are a few who stand before God, holy and blameless. There are a few who are adopted into the household of God. There are a few who repent. There are a few who really receive Christ, and the rest do not, even though they may be seeking heaven. And it is something to be gloried in that God allows unbelievers to breathe, to exist, to walk around the earth and use all of God's mercy to attack God. I mean, if you were a king and you had a kingdom and you were just and you were good to your servants... And your servants, you know, you had these rabble-rousers out there, you know, burning down your creation. And you had your rabble-rousers out there sinning against you and turning against you and teaching contrary to your commandments. And so you sent messengers out there and they killed them. And you sent messengers out there and they killed them. And you sent messengers out there and they rejected them. And then finally you sent your only begotten son and they killed him. I mean, what would you do? You would bring those wretches to a wretched end. And yet God waits. He waits. This is our hope. This is the good servant's hope that God is so gracious and loving and compassionate that for now, he is holding back his just punishment of all men so that they might have a chance to believe and be saved. And so that is why he labors. That is why he strives to be godly, to be constantly nourished up in the words of the faith so he can be a light in a dark world, so he can share the gospel, so he can lead people to Christ, so they can be especially believers too. He knows God is merciful, but he also knows that though God is long-suffering, he is not ever suffering. And there will come a day when God's long-suffering comes to an end. Millions of people live on the face of this planet every moment relying on the support system of God's grace and mercy. And they don't give God any credit. They use God's mercy and grace. They are like leeches and parasites sucking God's goodness from him and giving him nothing in return. No praise, no thanks, no glory. And he still lets them do it. Jude describes them with these words in Jude 12, 
and 13. These are the men who are hidden reefs in your love feasts. When they feast with you without fear, carrying for themselves clouds without water, carried along, along by winds, autumn trees without fruit, doubly dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up their own shame like foam, wandering stars for whom the black darkness has been reserved forever. Well, God's waiting and he's patient and we can have hope in this. But hope is only for today. Salvation is only for today. We cannot presume upon tomorrow. Now is the day of salvation. The lesson to learn is don't be content with just being religious. Don't be like ignorance who showed up on the gate. Hi, I'm ignorance. Yes, we know. I want to come in. Who says? I've heard the king teach. Where's your certificate? I don't have one. We'll talk to the king about you. And then off they take him into the mouth of hell. And so you need to ask yourself, which one am I? Am I one who is merely temporarily being preserved? Or have I been eternally preserved? You take a ripe peach... You know, and it'll keep for a couple of days, and then it rots. You can it up, it stays for a long time. Which one are you? Preserved permanently or preserved temporarily? When you look at your life and you examine your heart, when you survey your walk with the Lord, what do you see there? I mean, what do you see there? What is the way that you walk? What is? How do you think? Well, think about it. Do you live your life hoping to give God a little bit of attention so he'll like you and hopefully he'll overlook and hopefully your good deeds will outweigh your bad deeds and you kind of have the scale mentality? Do you see yourself as a person trying to do something, anything to get to heaven? Do you see yourself as bargaining with God? Well, God, I'm willing to give you this and I'm willing to give you this because I don't want to go to hell and hopefully you'll get there and see that, you know, I did give you something and I should get there after all, it's all of grace. Do you see a person whose Christianity is only lived out on Sunday? I mean, what's your life like? And of course, I, I don't know. Only God knows. He's the one who sees your heart. Do you see yourself as a person who serves in the church for the approval of others? or for the love of God, because you have a passion to give glory to God? Do you see yourself as one who gives regularly, not because you want a piece of the action and want to say, because you just want to give to God, like the scriptures say? Is your religion nothing more than a pretense or a thin veneer of hypocrisy? I mean, what is it? What is in your heart? If that is what you see when you look at your own heart and life, then what do you think Jesus is going to do when you stand before him? Do you think he's going to become a universalist? No. No. Do you really think he is going to let you in because you sought heaven your own way, jumped over the fence and did not go through the narrow gate? There will be no hope. But there is hope right now. Because God's mercy is now. God's grace is right now. It might not be tomorrow, as we learned from John's sermon on the day of the Lord, but it is still today, right now at least. 
And God commands you to repent. He commands you to receive Jesus Christ. He commands you to take up your own cross, die to self, and follow hard after Him. To turn from your wicked thoughts and your wicked ways and to do what He wants you to do. That's what Jesus commands you to do. He laid down His life for you because men on their own cannot get there. Even though they may seek it. Even though they may want heaven, even though they may may want to escape from hell, you cannot do anything to save yourself. It is all of grace, all of mercy, and nothing of you. Nothing. And as soon as you think it is something, Jesus says, it's not you. It's not you. You think it's something? It's not you getting in there. Paul says, listen, if you think that grace is of works, you have just nullified grace. Because it's of works, it's no longer grace. And we're saved by grace. If in your heart right now you cry out to God and you admit your sin and you say, Jesus, I want you to save me. I am willing to forsake my sin and follow you. Not doing this bargaining thing with you. Well, I'll give you 75% right now. You know, I really want to get this job promotion and I might have to be a little dishonest and I just don't really want to commit that part to you right now. You know, I want to make sure I get married first. I want to make sure I achieve my whatever first and then I can give you maybe the whole thing later. That's, that's, that's bargaining. It's either all or nothing. You either come helpless, hopeless, broken and humble or you don't come. You will come under the category of especially those who believe when you truly repent and receive Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. If your life is a desert void of vegetation and not a fruitful vine and you know it, you need to get right with God. If you look at your life and there's no radical transformation, there's never been a radical transformation. You're just coming to church. You're just kind of cruising. You're just kind of going week after week. You don't read your Bible. You don't pray. Who do you think you're kidding? I mean, you can, you can fool us and we believe you. But you aren't fooling God. You have to follow hard after Him. And that doesn't mean you have to follow after Him till you're 60 and then you get to go on retirement. You don't get to obey him until a certain age and then you're exempt. And it doesn't mean because your parents are Christian, if you're a young person, now my parents are Christian, therefore I know I'm going to get there. No, no, you don't know that. Psalm 73, 18 through 20, one of the texts that Jonathan Edwards used in his famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, describes those who may be very religious and who may think they're getting to heaven with these words, I have set their feet on slippery places. Now in Idaho in the winter, it it snows there. And the sun shines sometimes in the day and the winter, and it melts the snow way late in the afternoon, just for a little while, and the, the, the driveway will become just like a sheet of water, and then as soon as the sun goes down, it just gets really cold and it freezes. And it's just a sheet of ice. And you think that you'll be okay. And you walk on that ice, and you know, you're being careful, and the next thing you know, you are on your back, gasping for breath. All of a sudden, just bang, you are just on the cold ice and concrete, wondering, how did that happen? 
And then you get up thinking, well, I'm not going to let that happen again. And wham, you're on the ground again. That's the picture here. God says, those people who don't know me, who are living off of my grace like parasites, who are leeching me of all my goodness and not giving me glory, I have placed their feet on slippery places. And this is what he says. How they are destroyed in a moment. They are utterly swept away by sudden terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when aroused, you will despise their form. That is a bad place to be. To have your feet sitting on slippery places. But you can set your feet upon the dry rock through faith and repentance. Now for the rest of you who know the Lord and you have your hope fixed on Him, know that He is a rock. He is a fortress. He is a bulwark never failing. If you live very long, and the Bible is true, and it is, you know that things are going to get worse. And the only hope you have is the hope of God. And the only hope you have for all those unbelievers is that God right now is the Savior of all men. He is preserving all men for a time. And those people will never come to the Lord unless you witness to them. You have to do it. You have to witness to your own neighbor, your own co-worker, that own person in the grocery store, not me. I'm doing it right now. You need to do your own witnessing. In your own sphere of influence, all of us need to realize that time is short and the consequences are grim for those who don't know the Lord. And this is the hope universally. The hope particularly is that because we are saved, we will never be shaken. And though anything could come upon us, nothing shall separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Paul said this in 2 Corinthians 5, 10 and 11, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, what? We persuade men. Believers, because they know God's fear, they want to persuade men. They're desperate. They know that, boy, we've got to share our faith. There's nothing worse than knowing somebody who doesn't know the Lord and watching that person die. It just grieves me. I have parents who don't know the Lord, and I wish they could save them. And I, believe me, I've tried. And my brother's tried. But, you know, we can't save them. Only God can do that. We've witnessed to them. We send tapes to them. Just whatever it is. But you can't save them. But, you know, it's one thing to try all your life and just thank God, even after they die, that they had lots of opportunities. It's quite another thing to say no one ever shared with them. And the persons who are responsible to share with them are believers here. And all of us need to take that to heart And so the excellent minister labors and strives for godliness because he has fixed his hope on this living God. And this living God, he knows, is the savior of all men, preserving all men for a time. And so he labors, he strives, he works to build the church and build the saints to equip them for the work of the ministry so they can go out and evangelize. And all the while he is striving and he is agonizing, knowing the time is short. And he has this incredible hope. Because he knows 
that God will save whom he will save. And he also knows that nothing can separate him from the love of God. That is his hope and his treasure. And soon he will stand before his Lord and hopefully hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. So if you are saved, have hope and be diligent to share your faith with those who need the gospel. And if you don't know Christ, then now is the time to get off those slippery places because the scriptures say, suddenly terror comes and you are swept away. Let's pray. Father, we come before you thankful for this text, knowing that you are such a great God. You are so merciful to us, even though we are such sinners, even though all of us like sheep have gone astray and we've all turned to our own way, you still have mercy on us. Even though when you give us mercy, we use it to sin against you, you are still patient and compassionate. Father, may all of us, knowing your fear, persuade men. May we make it an effort to be bold, to share the gospel, not to be antagonistic, not to be obnoxious, but Father, may we be fearless, knowing that the only thing that can ever save anybody is that Jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that all who believe in you will not be disappointed. Father, use this body of believers for your glory and your grace to reach out to the law so we might see new believers in here excited about you and wanting to share their faith and wanting to grow that we might be infused with, with fresh young believers, that we might remember our own early days and that our gifts would be kindled afresh within us, that we would labor and strive to serve you with our whole heart and a willing mind. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.